don't know if it's the software or what. Oh, never use Wirecast is the moral of the story. Terrible. All right. Week after week. What's up, YouTube? Right. Yo. Okay. <laughs> All right, you're in. All right. Okay, All right. so uh, where were we? Oh, yeah, we started. I think we got two seconds in to say, hey. Uh, we're going over comments for the last three videos. Uh, all right, we got to start all over, man, because uh, a bunch of people watch this later, man. So what we're doing today is we got three investigates, and uh, we're going to dive into the things we didn't tell you. Questions that you may have asked because you did actually ask them. They're here uh, right. on the sheet. Uh, we took them off of the comments. They're specifically designed to dig in deeper. We also have stuff from the cutting room floor. Maybe you want to know how something much cost because we uh, decided to pull it out of the video, but uh, you might want to know. Yeah, there's so many times where you just write a script like this long, uh, mm. like, oh yeah. And you, you write this long script for something and you think that it all needs, all the information needs to be in there. Come to find out, it's just got to get cut. Yeah. It makes this. I mean, it makes the video a lot more clear, a lot more concise. But what happens to that cut material? We got yeah. you today. All right. So uh, for reference, we had three videos uh, investigates. We dug in. We found some science. We found some things that actually matter to how you maintain your tank. Uh, we found some pieces that connect the dots here as well. So uh, we got the calcium reactor. I've heard a lot of people say that you add phosphate with uh, your calcium reactor media. Oh yeah. It turns out it's definitely true. It's definitely true. Maybe a lot more than you thought. The even. one thing, uh, you know, this is, you kind of know that it's true in, or you feel like it because you're looking, I don't know, when we ran the little coral skeleton bits for, for so long, you kind of question always arose like why is there algae inside the reactor mm. why does it look nasty brown all the time inside the reactor well come to find out it's got 0.83 you know 20 <laughs> 200 times the amount of phosphates right that uh, solution yeah i mean that's not uh yeah out oh, of the room yeah. we're going to talk about air uh, versus uh water and how you measure par but actually not even really that we're going to talk about how you're going to use that data to produce a better result in your tank <laughs> uh and we're also going to talk about the human eye against par because we did all three of those uh investigates but yeah digging into your specific questions that we may have missed in there and people are asking so let's dive in so the very first one i'll let you read it out uh all right so first one we're talking about is the calcium reactor uh, test. This one dropped uh, yesterday, I believe, and people are all over the place about it. Like, are calcium reactors nitrate fire, or phosphate factories? Uh, and some of the comments that rolled in, James uh, says, always wanted an experiment that demonstrated the phosphate and or nitrate added per cube of frozen food in a set amount of water. Feels like knowing the inputs would help us all with the export. I 100% agree. Yeah. So this goes beyond calcium reactor. Yeah. And it's on our list, actually. Let's let's go and start adding cubes of food because I cubes, would like to know dry food and yep. like what the you know uh, what ounce for ounce you dry out a frozen cube and you find out how many you know, ounces or grams there are. Mm -hmm. Give that in uh, dry food. What's the difference in phosphates? So if I added one cube of food every single day for uh, a month and I did no water changes and there was no other uptake, yeah. where would the phosphate land? Yeah. Uh, I wanna know. I don't know. So in this case, what you kind of found out when you watch Randy's videos, a little bit of insight of different sources of phosphorus uh, addition to the tank. Yeah, it's not just food. 
Mm -hmm. uh. Food is definitely one of them. Nitrogen and phosphorus uh, like mm. build up the DNA of food, or of organics rather. Yeah, I mean, there's probably, I mean, there's probably other sources of nitrate and phosphate. You think of like if you have a refugium or something, the breaking down of or the dying of some of the material underneath or the Cato underneath. Anything organic, it goes in a tank. Poo, food, algae, anything that breaks down. Phosphorus and nitrogen. Yeah. And you know, and part of it though is understanding the scale, because just saying it adds phosphate, like uh, you know, shame on that thing. Right? It's really yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of them, uh, I think that it was Stephen Pro did this, uh, and don't I might be wrong on this one, but I think that who it was, he went and tested carbon. You know, and whether right. or not carbon added phosphate to the tank, and it's coal and stuff that came out of the ground in many cases, or peat moss or whatever, and it does. It has some amount of phosphate that adds. Now, at the time, this is like 15 years ago, oh, yeah. it sent everybody scrambling, like, oh my Don't gosh, use carbon. Carbon. Uh, carbon's gonna Can add I phosphate. get phosphate-free carbon? Okay, the problem was like, what it was is they added one tablespoon of carbon to a cup of water and tested the cup of water. Which, no, uh, yeah. you know, in which, proportion to an aquarium and the amount of carbon that you need not even close. That means in my 100 gallon tank to get the same result, I'd have to add 16 gallons of carbon. <laughs> yeah, okay. So your point, you know, one phosphate that you got out of that, I'm not sure that's actually relevant because I only use two cups of carbon, not 16 gallons. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Very minimal. But in this case, with the calcium reactor media, mm. I think a actually shockingly high amount of phosphate coming from dissolving some of that yeah. organic material, or, or not organic material, some of the calcium carbonate sources and dosing it to the tank. Well, the thing about it is too, and I made, I did the math on it, at 30 mils per minute, you know, 24 hour continuous duty dosing pump, you're dumping in, or you're turning over 11 gallons of water in a 24 hour period through your calcium reactor. Meaning that instead of just turning, if there were zero phosphates in the media, it would just be whatever the phosphates are in your tank. You're not adding, you're not taking away from, you're not doing anything. But if you have the uh, calcium reactor media that adds 200% more phosphate than what your water level is, uh, then you, all you're doing is bringing low, phosphor, uh, low phosphate water in, dumping 200 times plus out. Okay, to give, to, for some of you that may not have seen this video, the like uh, coral bone bits, you know, from two little fishes. When we dissolved it in the calcium reactor media, it was 0.8 parts per million. 0.83 parts per million, and the water source that was feeding the calcium reactor was 0 0.04. Yeah, so, so that's a lot. A lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, and it's and it's funny because you know that was the one that we really liked because it looks most like a coral. Yeah, uh, it just like makes seems sense. like kind of closest to the application. Yep. But you're gonna, if you wouldn't mm. watch it, you'd say, "I'm not sure I would use that one." Now. Yeah. In fact, no. Yeah. Uh, so, interesting. Uh, I'll, show, I'll bring up the next one here, which is great test. The reason for the difference in uh, the high pressure and temperature changed relatively soluble calcium uh, phosphates into extremely sol insoluble fluoro and hydroxy apathates. Uh, the higher the pressure, pressure, the temperature, the more insoluble the forms of phosphate. Hmm. What this is getting at is, in that experiment, there's, you know, you think of calcium carbonate as just calcium carbonate, but it actually comes in different forms. Like yeah. limestone's calcium carbonate. Oh, yeah. Coral skeleton is calcium carbonate. Yep. Marble is actually calcium carbonate. Dolomites. Uh, yeah, all kinds of different forms of it. Well, the, the, but, you know, this is with my argument at the end that, uh, you know, why would 
three aragonite-based calcium carbonates have phosphates and one calcite. Does that mean all of them are going to be the same? Uh, No, but you look at the the density, the structure, and how it was made. Uh, The coral bits closest to the thing that was actually living just a while ago, because it still looks like a little piece of coral, uh, probably still has a bunch of phosphate bound into the skeletal structure. Something that you mine from ancient coral beds that could be thousands of years old or millions of years old that you're mining from the ground, ancient ocean, uh, probably because of the higher temperature and higher pressure over the years and decades and decades, uh, could have turned that phosphate insoluble. Uh, that's what uh, uh, David uh, Bogart is saying, anyway. So here's the plausible. Piece, the interesting piece is like, well, why would the coral bits that actually looks like little pieces of Acropora yeah. uh, have you know higher phosphate in it, or why would it have phosphate at all, right? Mm. And it's the same reason that we keep phosphate low in the aquarium because what happens is you know as the calcium and the carbonate are coming together and they're forming calcium carbonate to build that skeletal structure, what's happening is the phosphate. phosphate pops right on the end of it, <laughs> and we call it poisons the surface because now it doesn't have an electrical charge that actually wants to pull in mm. more calcium and carbonate and actually repels it. Yeah. And so it stops the coral from growing actually at that site. And eventually stuff will grow over it and around it. Mm-hmm. But if you've got too much phosphate, you end up poisoning the surface of so much mm. that it actually makes the coral grow really slow. And that's one of the biggest reasons we want to maintain low phosphate in the tank. But that happens in the ocean too. And so in the ocean, you're poisoning the surface of that little coral bed in there just from the natural amount of phosphorus in the prey or mm-hmm. the surrounding water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though it's lower, it's still getting incorporated in the skeleton. And so when we melt that skeleton back into the tank, phosphate. Boom, add phosphate. Well, it's like you think of the com- the compounding nature of you know this process of I got a little frag and it's getting some phosphate on there, and then you know eventually it'll grow into a mini colony but it's building on top of phosphate, building on top of phosphate. So the real question is, uh, you know, by the time that it turns into uh, calcium carbonate, though, or calcium reactor media form, where it's all dead skeleton and dried and you're putting it now in your reactor and remelting it, does the phosphate live only on the surfaces of, the, of that media or is it all the way through to the center? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's probably throughout the entire thing as it's been poisoned and grown over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think there'll be an interesting uh, maybe uh, escalation of the, of the test here. But uh, yeah, let's go on to the next mm. one here. Uh, Ryan Thompson said, over the years, the best tanks I've seen seem to run calcium reactors. I highly doubt adding a little PO4 is hurting anything. <laughs> a lot of us have to dose it or overfeed like crazy to get PO4. If I had a calcium reactor running, I wouldn't pull it off after seeing these results. No, I wouldn't either. This is a good, uh, actually, uh, a good comment from Ryan because down when we were at uh, Worldwide Corals and we were mm. viewing all of uh, their tanks, I picked up on something that I was kind of surprising to me. Yeah, they not only are dumping a bunch of food into the tank, but you know, at least once or maybe even twice a day, they're taking f- Brightwell Phosphate E and dosing it into the tanks as a, you know, to control the higher level of phosphates. 
And you're wondering like, okay, well, is it the amount of food they're feeding or what is, it's not the filtration because they're, you know, two times a day, they're pulling filter padding out and putting it back in mechanically. They've got big giant skimmers running. The coral biomass itself is soaking up a lot of this. So where's all that phosphate coming from? And then you go around the back and you start to look at how they're uh, feeding, fueling these tanks with calcium and alkalinity and it's big giant calcium reactors with arm media. Okay, so that was the two pieces of the puzzle for me is what they said was we have stable nitrates here. Mm -hmm. Like the nitrates aren't continually growing. We keep them somewhere around 20 in many cases, but they're stable. But we have to use uh, this phosphate E to be able to pull the excess phosphate out. And I'm like, well, why does phosphate keep rising, but nitrate you found to be stable? And I didn't put it together at that moment in time. It was later, like, ah, oh, it's because you have a different source of phosphate mm. being the calcium reactor media going into the tank. So and it's like unbalanced with the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus that are in the tank. And uh, they're burning through media in oh, this yeah. case. So it's adding a lot. And so, but the flip side of this is like, that might sound bad. And like, if you watch this video, you'd probably say like, oh, I don't know if calcium reactor is for me. And, and you know, Ryan Thompson came out here and said kind of the opposite, like this wouldn't stop me from doing that, which I bet you is a rare viewpoint mm -hmm. uh, after watching that video, but also an accurate one. Because all they do is strip some of that phosphate out using the phosphate E. And the reason that they use that one is because if GFO is kind of like, it'll just take Tear it all out. Well, and not really, you know, easy to measure. Like this amount of GFO is going to have this result. No, the goal is to put enough in that it takes it all out in yeah. most cases and then keeps it there as well, right? Hmm. Whereas with the phosphate E, because it has like a known concentration, I can dose some, you know, if I dose 50 milliliters of this tank, it would lower it from 0.1 to 0 0.05. And it will do that every time I do yeah. that dose hmm. in this tank. So it's really reliable and consistent and, you know, makes it a lot easier. Yeah. All right, so next one. Uh, Louis says, uh, I really have a problem keeping my nitrates up. My phosphates always climb up and I need to run GFO. Uh, it's always been strange that I lose the balance this way. Maybe my calcium reactor is the problem. I've always stayed away from the hard media because of the low pH melting point. This hits Seemingly, this is exactly what, what this experiment is about. It hits everything that you tested. Right? Yeah. Right? So almost certainly the fact that phosphates are going up way faster than you can control, but nitrates aren't, you have a different source. You're using, it sounds like the, or, or the like uh, bits of coral uh, yep. in this case. And you, and, didn't so want, yeah, and you didn't want to use the other media because of the P low pH melting point it takes to, to uh, dissolve that lard that more thick crystalline structure so i'm going to actually share a thought process they would share with me that I, you got to decide which i want to end this year on because mm. right? it, it it may or may not be true but like i had a friend of mine max who owned a maintenance company locally and he said i would never use a, a calcium reactor because mm. for one and one only reason as Aquarius, we spend so much time trying to get the pH up. We have such a problem with all the excess carbon dioxide in the rooms from us breathing. Mm. Uh, by the way, we did an experiment on uh, BRS. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but we bought a calcium or a CO2 uh, it's monitor here somewhere. Yeah, it's in this room, and. When you see the difference between the weekend, when nobody's here in the weekend, you'll be floored. <laughs> and it shows up right up in the pH of the tank as well. So 
why in that world where I'm having all these problems keeping the pH up, and then when we find out that the corals grow twice as fast if we actually keep the pH up, would I put any piece of equipment on the tank that intentionally lowers the pH with a low pH fluent? I know. Well, I mean, all that's why? going to, well, all that is going to spur, I, I mean, I agree. Yeah, like, why would I fight phos or fight pH? Uh, but th that spurs more experiments. Okay, well, you know, rather than just say, I'll never use a calcium reactor, what are the different ways or what are some of the best ways that we can uh, mitigate the low pH but still get all the calcium reactor benefits? So here, here's the answer to the flip side of that is, is if you don't have a uh, pH problem to begin with, this isn't part of the equation. No. Like, like say that you live in a big house alone. Well, CO2 probably isn't a problem. <laughs> if you live in a small house with six kids, it probably is a problem. Right. Five dogs, you know, <laughs> that, that's going to be a problem. So it may be a problem for some people in a way that it isn't for others. Uh, but if you're already having a problem, why, you know, scale it up even more? Mm. Uh, but also, like, it's the type of tank. So if you look at the Worldwide Corals tank, I mean, end-to-end -end coral. Oh, yeah. Right? There's so much uptake for carbon dioxide in, in the tank. Uh, so many living organisms in the tank that are using that for photosynthesis. It's just not a problem. Yeah, pH, uh, you know, when every single piece of zooxanthellae in a fully jam-packed SPS-dominated uh, uh, system is uh, creating or pulling CO2 from the water, creating, a, you know, a better balance, why not? Um, but I wonder if you could run like, uh, this is one I really want to try is like, okay, so we have this pH or we have this pH problem. Uh, let's set up a tank that has the effluent running into a refugium. Let's set up a tank that has the effluent running into uh, the skimmer input or the recirculating skimmer input. You know what would be interesting actually is if you took the calcium reactor, took it one step further, and then put like just its own little CO2 scrubber on the end of oh, it, yeah. right? Just whisked the water and the air yeah. together and just stripped it out. Well, as I already yeah. did the test of, uh, you know, does can does a secondary chamber on a reactor uh, off gas CO2, and it was the difference was like uh, 6.45 to 6.42, so like hardly at all. So. Here's the big deal or here is like, why are you gonna see so many people out there like raising their hand like, oh, it's not a problem for me. And for other people like, oh, it was a problem for me. It's because it's that difference. Like there isn't a one size fits all answer for everybody. Mm -hmm. Like if you have six people and six dogs living in uh, uh, an apartment, it's gonna be a bigger <laughs> problem for you than uh, a much larger house with one person in it. So like, you know, think about how all this stuff applies. So next one here, great video, uh, mind-blowing results. Does the phosphate concentrated on the surface area ah. as left behind by an animal died, or is it binded uh, deep into the calcium carbonate structure? Is it possible to test an answer for that? Meaning, when we got those little coral bits and then the 8.4 uh, uh, phosphate that came off of it, like, was that organics on the surface of the coral or is it bound up in the skeleton? Because with those like harder types of uh, calcium carbonate, what were the three types? Uh, there's aragonite, calcite, and vaterite. But yeah. aragonite and calcite are what we use, but. Yeah, so the calcite's so hard and so mm -hmm. dense, it's like clearly been mined or something like yes. that. Like it's uh, not, yeah. doesn't resemble a coral in any way, yeah. right? Uh, so that calcite stuff, was, was doing either zero addition of phosphate or very little, right? Yeah. Uh, but in the, well, you've, 
even different than that is the two other forms of aragonite that had phosphates. Uh, I mean, mm. they looked nothing like skeleton bits except for our media that was the middle of the road. Uh, uh, it actually had, it looked like fossils. You can still see little, like, shells. little shells and stuff in there. So it was definitely from an ancient seabed, uh, but with like four, uh, 40 times less phosphate than the actual coral skeleton bits. But he asked the question, you know, is it possible to design a test to answer that? And I actually think that uh, this one's pretty easy. Uh, you, just like we did, I filled up a reactor, I fed it, and I ran it at uh, a pegged pH for 24 hours, and then tested the phosphate. If we were to come back about a month later after use, you would think that all of the uh, surface of all the little bits were now uh, dissolved away, and we'd be working with more of the middle of the material. Uh, would the phosphate stay the same all the way through like two or three months worth of use? If they did, then it's probably bound all the way through the, the material rather than just the surface. Mm, I agree. That's how I test it. I, I believe wholeheartedly though, looking at the stuff, it looks pretty clean. I don't think it's from the organics. I think it's poisoned in the surface of yeah. the calcium carbonate yeah. crystal and melting. Mm. Uh, all right, so uh, Julie Morgan, uh, my nitrates are zero, phosphate's 0.25. How do I lower phosphate and raise nitrate? Those are two different questions. The best ways to raise, raise nitrate is feed more. Uh, or reduce the, the efficiency of your filtration, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, you could turn your refugium on, on only every other day or four hours instead of eight hours. Uh, you could feed more, you could turn your skimmer off for a portion of the day, or you could actually dose actual nitrate uh, to the tank. Uh, I think the most popular one's from Brightwell. Ah, uh, yeah, neonitrile. Neonitrile, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, but how do I get my pho uh, get the phosphates, phosphates down? Or raise nitrates. Okay, well, there's all those inverses, make your filtration work better. And, hey. uh, but these are like the opposite of what we just said, and it's not going to help you. So what you're going to have to do is strip it out. This is one of the times where you could use GFO as a tool to get you back down, get you down to the level where you want to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can do it that way, but at, you know, at 0.25, that Brightwell uh, phosphate E stuff is uh, measurable and it says it will bring down your phosphate like by 0.05 or something with a certain amount of dose. Oh, well, and now I just know I dose this much. All right. I'm going to defend GFO for a moment. Uh, okay. I, I just recently started using it again. I don't really use GFO that often because I don't have a phosphate problem. Uh, but uh, at my tank at home, I was feeding a lot, you know, trying to keep a bunch of antheas alive and stuff. And so I was feeding a lot and I was starting to get creeping phosphate in it. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to put some GFO in, in with the carbon that I run all the time. And you know, what it did is different than what I had done in the past, which is I didn't put so much in there that I was designing to keep the phosphate like at, you know, really ultra low levels all mm. the time. Uh, what I did is I put enough in there that it brought it down to where I wanted it and then it was depleted and I let it kind of creep back up before I used some more. Mm. So instead of, uh, you know, using so much that it's like, you know, trying to strip it out, it out and keep it there hundred percent of the time. I don't have, I didn't have problems with algae or anything like that. It was just, you know, the health of organisms and trying to keep, you know, the stop poisoning the surface of the calcium crystal. Mm. So yeah, I, I actually use GFO a little bit different, a little closer to how, you know, you might use phosphate E, I guess, uh, which is use some of it to get it down. And if I actually paid attention to it, I think I could get the same effect, which is I could figure out that a cup of GFO mixed into your you carbon, know, mixed into the carbon yeah. would reduce it from 0.1 to 0.5. I bet you could. And I just know that every... When it gets back up, do it again. Presumably, too, if it went up from 0.15, if I used two cups, it would go down to 0.05. Right. So uh, I, 
I think you could use it that way in a way that I haven't used it before and really kind of got the juices flowing for yeah, me a little makes bit. Sense. All right, so the part that we cut out was actually pretty interesting to me because sometimes you know, the most expensive options out there are the best, and sometimes the cheapest options are the best. I, I'm dying to know. Such is the case. So there was four K, four different medias here. The uh, the Triton media had no phosphate it's in calcite it. Calcite based. Calcite yeah. based, but the pH had to be pretty low, like, like five point nine. Yeah, five point nine. Pretty yeah, low. Yeah, to get a thirty dKH effluent. The two little fishes, you could go all the way up to six point five. Yeah. Uh, to melt it. But it added a lot, 0.85 uh, phosphate. Tons of phosphate. Arm uh, a little bit better. And then the KZ media was kind of like a blend of both. 6.1 and just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of phosphate. Almost unmeasurable given the tool and the, the variance and the range of it. So you could almost say none to very, you know, a little, very little amount. No, but in the end, like the uh, R media, um, it melted at 6.1, but it had higher for like seven times the amount of phosphates. So what was the cost? Uh, this one's pretty interesting. Do you have here's, a sheet? Uh, here's oh, the sheet. So uh, the cheapest option being the $2.48 per pound uh, is KZ Aragonite Media, which- Shocking. I, I know. So this is this is why the reason you uh, you said you were going to ask me this question, and I cut this part out. But this was another part of the reason why I said, you know, if I were going to choose a media, I'd choose KZ. One because it has six point uh, six point one melting point for thirty dKH, which was like the arm, uh, but the arm has higher phosphates. It's not as good as the Reborn, but it's way less phosphates, and it's not as good in the uh, as the uh, Triton uh, in phosphates but it is higher in the melting point. So uh, KZ, Ragonite, 248 per pound. Uh, next up was the Arm at 255 per pound, and uh, then Triton at 318 per pound, and Two Little Fishies at $4.05 per pound. So if you had asked me, I would have told you, I've never seen anything where KZ was the cheapest of anything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's I have, true. I would have been really surprised. I also would have been surprised that uh, Triton wasn't amongst, you know, they would have come in number two either. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. All right, so you guys do what you want to do with Calcium Reactor Media. You now know more about it specifically. What I what I actually I watched this video again this morning. Oh, and yeah. I texted Randy, and I'm like, dude, you did a really good job on this one because the, the measurement I'll put this on is you have changed the way that I will think about calcium reactor media forever. I yeah. will never think about it the same way again. I think so. I'm, I'm, the revelation for myself in this one, too. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, bravo to you. It was the first thing I did at 7.30 in the morning, watch this thing <laughs> and uh, share with you. Uh, all right. So, uh, next one. Okay, so we got a bunch of questions about testing PAR in ah. air versus water. Yeah. Oh, this was this led um, came up with a really good conversation because, uh, you know, a lot of times on manufacturers' websites or other people in the industry who have PAR meters and things like that, they set up these tests for lights, and it's like, all right, we're going to measure PAR, the PAR output of this light. And uh, especially when you're making comparison videos of how it uh, of uh, how it compares to another one, but also from a manu manufacturer's standpoint, you're uh, this is you know what you're saying your light can provide. The problem is, is a lot of times those are measured in air, yeah. and air is just not representative. One, it's completely disrepresentative of how we're actually going to apply it in the real world environment that it's made for. Uh, but the properties of light in a glass box with water dramatically changes the output. 
So I'm going to tell you the outcome of this, in case you didn't watch it, was uh, overwhelmingly you should test this in water, no question. Always. Uh, and I'm going to tell you- You should ask that question. When, you, when you're looking at PAR charts or you're looking at PAR data from any light manufacturer or anybody that uh, is kind of giving you the rating, you should ask that question. Was this tested in water or air? You know, here, here's the thing. This is the reason why this really came up for me, is I, I got a little bit of a pet peeve with this one. Yeah. Uh, okay, so testing in air, meaning, in, in testing for air versus water for anybody not falling around, testing in air means I get a little two-foot grid and I, you know, take a 36-point or something like that grid mm. in, in air. I usually mount the light exactly 24 inches or something above at a fixed light. There's a couple of problems with that. One is an enormous amount of light spills outside in yep. this two-foot area, so it's not captured. The other is it's like two foot away, so it's only, it's a fixed height for all lights, even though some lights are designed to be like six inches away from the tank, and some of them are designed to be 14 16, inches. 14, yeah. Like, putting them all at exactly 24 inches, Doesn't like, work. it just, I, it, you know, the, the mindset here, I understand, because what we're trying to do is put all lights in the exact same environment, and we'll measure them all against this exact same thing, remove all of the, you know, interferences the and whatever. variables, uh, yeah. But we've done it so much so that the same fixed height and, you know, the spill, like, it just doesn't give us representation of anything. I think that's like taking uh, going to the car dealership and then the car dealership has this little off-road ramp and then you go and you want to take every single car through that off thing and then go up. Oh, if they don't, uh, you know, here's how they all performed. Uh, but they're not made that way. Some uh, red, this little red sports car is not made to go over that thing. Mm -mm. This little one's made to go over, uh, you know, uh, dirt trails, roads, what have you. So yeah, it's just crazy. You can't have a standard like that. But so this is my pet peeve. So some of you, I'm, this is how ancient I am, is this goes back to the Halide T5 oh, thing. Yeah. Okay, and like back then everybody was talking about punch. You know, you need to have punch to get the part of the bottom of the tank, you know? Mm. And so we're all testing these things in air and you would look at it and a halide would perform really well and halides have that punch and like in mentality, your mentality is like, I got this super bright bulb, of course that thing's got the punch to get to the bottom, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then I got these T5 lights that are performing terrible, right? Like they don't get any par to the bottom, the results are like really dismal, a T5 lights too soft, Inferior. doesn't have yeah. a par, punch, mm. whatever. But well, Actually, that, I remember that, that was the advice for, like, if you want SPS, you want SPS dominant, halides, T5s can't do it. Two T5s are inferior. We now know that to be a total joke. Total that joke. Is, like, so that's why it's like using this method made the entire hobby come to a completely wrong solution, right? Yeah. That, like, just wasn't accurate at all and made us do the wrong thing, right? Now, when you fast forward and you put the uh, uh, T5s in an actual glass box of aquarium, instead of having that super big wide angle light that has reflectors that sends light out super far, instead of just spilling it all over the floor like it did with the air test, yeah. the glass, if you watch the video, beep, reflects beep, it beep, and beep. refracts it back into the tank. And then that punch ways. comes from not just the rays down, but all of the reflections that go back down to the bottom of the tank. And I'll tell you that it's true too, not just in our testing, but in real world tanks where mm. we actually go measure the part on the bottom and it's definitely brighter. Yeah. 250 watts of uh, T5s puts a way more light than 250 watts of a halide bulb, and 
Not surprising, because the halide bulb put out so much heat, we had to have a chiller, and heat is just like a measurement of energy inefficiency. Inefficiency, yeah. Yeah, like, exactly. it all comes together. But testing in air, like, made us all come to the wrong conclusions. Mm. So that is why this is the biggest pet peeve for me, and why now, actually, what, you know, really what happens now is when you test in air, it, it like, you know, makes these like laser beam lights with super duper focused lenses look better. Yeah. Right? And then you take all the lights that are wide angle and had hit uh, objects from all kinds of different uh, 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 angles as well as off the reflections to perform better at the application of an organism that requires light to provide energy and it punishes that light by allowing <laughs> it to spill on the ground. So. Uh, obviously this is a pet peeve of mine, but mm -hmm. like understanding this now, if you go watch the video, they're like, oh, I get it. I get why this glass is doing that. All right, so read the first one. All right. So water versus air test. One of the first comments that came in and questions was awesome information. I didn't realize how much water amplifies the par. That's crazy. It doesn't amplify it. It doesn't amplify it. The water won't make the par go up. Bigger, no. It just takes, Redistribute. The, takes that light that was going to go through uh, the sides and spill on the floor and bends or refracts or reflects it back into the tank. Mm. So it essentially like captures all the light, doesn't really amplify it or make it more than it was before. It just captures it all inside that glass box. Mm. And what's kind of interesting is like, I didn't expect it to be so pronounced. When we brought out the laser and there's no water in the glass and the straight laser through. goes straight through the glass, when you put the water in, all of a sudden Here. it bounces back yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Right? And it was interesting because I actually called up a bunch of my scientist buddies and like asked them all why it does this. <laughs> we were talking to Dana and we were talking to everybody, yeah. And everybody didn't actually know. Yeah. You know, we talked about Schnell's Law and stuff like yep. that. And then what actually came up is uh, we found a uh, video or a, an article about why I can't see my watch ah, yeah, underwater at yep. certain angles and I other angles I can. I read and that. It yeah. looks like a mirror in many angles. And what's happening is the uh, light's actually passing through the glass, but it's hitting the outside edge of the glass, but it the glass changes Bing. the, refracts the light and bends it at an angle that makes it bounce back in. Yeah. And the only area that it doesn't bounce back in is the very, very, very top. And it's interesting because when we got the laser out, it didn't just like shoot through the side, it went through and it refracts so strangely oh. through the glass, it shoots down at the ground. Yeah, it's you crazy. Know? And they're like, well, I can actually see that with my eyes at my tank when I look down and there's light on the there's ground. There's light on the ground. <laughs> and then when you're actually, and then when you're looking at your tank up against the wall and you see the actual shape of your tank up against the wall, mm -hmm. you see, oh, oh that's all that's of the light bouncing off of the top of the surface of the water. Mm. Yeah. The laser was so much fun. This one was interesting too, Practical Reaper. Uh, this is incredible. Assume the manufacturers uh, put uh, par and air values is an attempt to make the, looks, the lights look better. Yeah. But they're actually making them look worse. <laughs> well, done. <laughs> well done. And it's true. It is true. It's like if, if you are, especially for those that, that build those uh, very wide angle type lights. So you think if, uh, you know, if the Neptune, the Radions, you know, these uh, wide angle lights that we've been testing recently, if they give you the data and air, it's going to look just muted. It's going to look less par. You're not going to see like the, you may see the, the actual spread or the a more realistic spread because it's made to, you know, you can see, oh, well, there's still par out in the outer 36 inches. 
Uh, but you're actually, if they did that that way, they're doing themselves a disservice. Shooting yeah. themselves in the foot. All the manufacturers are testing air are actually underrepresenting how the light's going to perform in the intended application. Mm. So it's actually interesting. I would have thought the same, actually, yeah. you know, without really thinking about it too the, deeply, that the error would perform better, and ah, that's why they do it that they're way. They're doing it in air. That means it's going to be better. You know, I think one of the number one reasons they probably don't do it in water is because nobody wants to get their arm wet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I've seen it, though, at, at uh, some of the organizations that do this. They actually do it in air probably because what they do is they have a little robot that sends the oh, probe back and forth, yeah. and will like so you can go push so a button out. and it'll just map out the part. Yeah, you can't do that. Yeah, they don't have a Brent that like has to go into the water <laughs> he changes to do it, it every two seconds. Get right the robot down to work underwater is harder. <laughs> you right. only got to do it once. Next one. Uh, cool Jewel says uh, BRS discovers. The oh, this is funny. A uh, little tongue in cheek here, but. BRS discovers the basic physics of light. Funny part is, many experienced reefers are floored by the results. This is high school uh, physics, folks. You know, it's true, actually. But you know what? I actually reached out to like a bunch of scientists uh, in our industry, and they didn't know some of the people that actually test lights, and they didn't uh, understand what was going on either. It's that it's the the pro uh, the. The confusing point is, is like, yes, uh, we know the, f the physics properties of, you know, the refraction, reflection, how light, when it hits water, it gets bent and all this. The variable here that nobody, I don't think really much testing exists on is how it, uh, light reacts in a box of water. Mm -hmm. Like a, a box, glass box of water is a completely different variable than anything that, like, why would a, a scientist go explore glass reflections, uh, light reflections in a glass box? It's just mm -hmm. not, not, doesn't apply to hardly anybody, but for us, it applies massively. So, yeah, I don't know. For the person that's researching this, sure, basic physics. But, like, if you take the laser and you watch it go through glass flawlessly, I mean, like, almost none of it gets reflected back into the tank. And it goes right through the glass. And then you fill it up and you see the exact opposite that when the thing is full of water, none of the laser no longer sends water or light out of mm. the tank. And it you can see the beam just bounce around in the tank. Yeah. Like, Okay, well, bravo uh, to you that you knew all of this. But <laughs> like to everybody else in the world, you can see how profoundly well the glass well, box holds well, it all in. I mean, we've got a pretty good understanding of you know some of the science basics and things like that. But even when you and I first took the laser back there and we saw this firsthand, we were sitting there like holding papers, looking for where the beam went, doing all this Smoke other stuff. Machine. Yeah, we had all kinds <laughs> of like we want to figure out what's happening to this thing, and it, we were all of, we were just floored that uh, it was acting so strange than what you thought. Well, and so for us too, like I mean, it's not lost on us that we're creating video, and so having like a visual element like the laser show you exactly what's happening in the. They're like, uh, yeah. I can connect the dots now in a way that just pure par numbers doesn't. Yeah. I can connect the dots as to what happens on the black back of the tank. We'll yeah. talk about it in a second. <laughs> but like, ah, uh, I get it why it's showing this way in a visual representation that makes it a lot easier to digest. Hmm. Uh, oh, one of our, f one of our uh, most highly decorated commentators on <laughs> our videos. Shaozin uh, Zhang, I believe is how you say it. but. Water test is a great estimate. Is a great estimate if you have the same size of tank. Mm -hmm. uh, but air testing is more useful to identify the physics of the light. If you uh, if you just test a 24-inch cube, but not test uh, a 40, uh, let's say, uh, physics of light in a 24-inch cube versus a 48-inch cube. 
The water performance in a 24-inch cube could be uh, estimated by folding the values outside of the preliminaries back into the tank with a, with a coefficient. Uh, the same could be done with 18 and 32 widths. This is one of the data could be useful in the scenarios, though some additional work. Okay, I like the thought on this. Like, could you take the data from a 24-inch, uh, flip it, add some coefficients, add it to a 48-inch? So what this is getting at a little bit is that yeah, okay, so the glass box changes the dynamics of mm -hmm. the light, but also not everybody using a 60 cube, but if I had a 30 cube, but if I had a 120, the physics of the light won't be the same, it's gonna throw it off, all of which is true, Yeah. right? All right, so what he's saying is, well, couldn't you just get like a 40 inch grid uh, and then you know use some kind of you know coefficient or calculation to fold that light back in to uh, the shape or yeah. size that you had. I don't know, but that's also way beyond I mean, what anybody's gonna do. <laughs> that we have so, a Brent that goes into a 48 inch tank and tests. And not only that, but like when you're extrapolating some of this information to a 48 inch tank versus a, a 24 inch tank, yeah, a couple things happen. In a real world application, I'm using more than one light to cover that area. Uh, and that introduces a whole other different type of variables with intersecting points of light inside the tank. The, uh, how this one uh, light over here bounces way the heck over there, uh, but how that also blends with all the light that's coming back this way. The, re the reflection and refraction beams inside a, a longer tank with multiple light sources is probably you know, 100 times more complicated than a simple beam inside a small. Yeah. So here's the answer to that story. Of course it is different in different sizes and shape, but we chose a two foot cube because most of today's LED fixtures are designed to be optimal over area. a uh, two, foot, uh, two foot square. Yeah. So it makes sense that maybe like 80, 20 this, like hate help 80% of the people. It, and like a 120 is a really common size. And even if it deviates from that, like it's a 90, you know, it's, it's still two feet by 18 inches that it's probably gonna cover. Mm. It's not that far off. Uh, and then things like the prime, there's a reason why we tested it in an 18 inch cube instead of a 24 inch cube. In fact, in that one, we actually tested it in both, so yeah. you get an idea. So somebody actually asked, asked this question too, is because you know none of these options are perfect. Air isn't perfect, the water apparently isn't perfect, it's not the exact same glass box. But the person who responded to that question said this, yes, it's not absolutely perfect to test in water, but that doesn't mean we have to pick the absolute worst option instead. <laughs> That's true. That's like I, and by worst, I mean, like the par that what? came out of, I think the, yeah. the Red Sea uh, 90 mm -hmm. was 130% different in air versus water at the bottom. It was like the difference of 60 par to like 130. That's big. Dude, it's not even the same realm. I would pick, I, if you made me buy a light based on that performance of 60 par in air, I wouldn't buy it. Yeah. Right? It's but not gonna meet my needs. With 130, I know that this is actually a pretty solid LPS light in my two foot mm. area I'm covering inside a glass yeah. box. So don't pick the worst testing option that we're stuck with. Pick one that's better, may not be perfect. Yeah, or figure out the coefficient of calculation <laughs> over a 40 foot area. I mean, I love the fact that he said this because it's, it's next level thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I'm trying to imagine, like, obviously the average person would never do that. Mm. Could we do it, you know, in a 40 foot or 40 inch area? 
The problem would be like proving that that was accurate in every possible formulation of the calculation mm. and really being confident in how you could fold par back into we're, a box. We're talking a, a month or two worth of uh, testing and testing and testing and testing to come up with that formula to do that when uh, just got some par meters. Okay, you know what? Actually, one of the other things about the air test and like the fixed height of 24 inches is it actually only tests the worst possible point at which wide-angle lights perform, which is the bottom, mm. right? And so with the water testing we're doing, we're capturing the bottom, the middle, and the top, and we're seeing the distribution. And when you don't do, if you did that in air, with the lights that actually perform really well at the bottom, if you did the test at the top, you would see it's a total laser beam. Oh yeah. Right? It's like, you know, 800 par, right, yeah. at, at the top. So like, the one that performs the best in air at the bottom, will probably perform the worst at the middle and the top. True statement. Yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, there's a comment on here. Christopher says, uh, maybe we should just take the blue pill when it comes to the cube <laughs> of light. Oh, yes. Dusk194 says, I've said this before and I'll say it again here. Your light testing methodology is a standout for the aquarium lighting, for aquarium lighting technology. Is it perfect? Is it without improvement? No, nothing ever is. But your methods present a standard which producers should attempt to meet. You know, uh, it would be nice. It doesn't Thank have you. to be our method necessarily, but huh. it'd be nice if everybody tested Thought in a, a couple steps yeah. higher on. And I know that that's a the perception that testing errors is equal, but it isn't. It, it doesn't, we're not testing at all levels. We're not testing at the recommended manufacturer's height from those levels. And we're not even attempting to capture the fact that this glass box holds it all in. Yeah. We're just throwing all of that away. Mm. So that doesn't make any sense. Weird. All right, so, uh, <laughs> all right, Christopher Crawford. So uh, I'm imagining what it would look like standing inside the aquarium uh, looking up. Would you see the actual light above you, but also a reflection of each light in the pane of glass unless it was painted? You might also see as many as five lights, the real one and uh, four re reflections in each glass pane. Ah, this, this is really cool. Uh, so bef you know, we're, before we talk about some Snell's Law and things like that, but what I did do you know, in my, some of my testing uh, was um, I couldn't find an experiment online or an explanation for why it is, but if you take a, you find yourself like a, a square, uh, container, a glass container. Uh, maybe it's a small aquarium, but uh, you know, something with flat sides that is like your aquarium. If you put like a knife or a straw down into that and you look down through the top at the one of the edges, you'll see a mirror image. You'll see the straw inside mm -hmm. uh, when, it's when it's full of water. When it's empty, you won't see anything. Uh, mm -hmm. But when it's full, it turns into a mirror. And, uh, you know, same thing here is, uh, is what he's saying is like these glass sides then turn into uh, a, a full mirror. And not only that, but it also has something to do with the same uh, principles that apply to like one way glass. So one way glass is typically a very bright room on one side, a dimmer room on the other side, uh, the angle of the glass inside the bright room, and they do put like a film or something on the on there to help reflect it back. But if I'm sitting if I'm sitting in the in the bright bright room and I'm looking at that piece of glass on the dark rooms on the other side, just like sitting in your house at home with the lights on inside at night versus looking outside, like you see yourself. 
Same thing in a, in a box. So this is so my opinion. No what I've never stuck my head inside of a glass uh, box of water. Before. I might have to for science. But somebody <laughs> asked the other day, "Is like I can I can look through the side of my tank and I can see a reflection of the fish. Are the fish seeing a reflection uh -huh, of themselves?" Uh -huh. Okay, so here's the pit that the or the bit you got to really consider is. The answer is almost certainly the fish is looking out or you, if you put your head straight out, you would see the room. Straight, outside. like 90 yeah. degrees. The nature of it is glass is transparent. If it didn't allow light straight mm -hmm. out of it, you wouldn't be able to see the coral. Right. Because the light's hitting the coral, bouncing right. off the coral and then back at your eyes. When you start to look at an angle though. Yeah, if I was down deep and I was looking at it, I would start to see not just the light above me, but I'd see the lights in the angles around the tank yep. probably as well. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So you probably wouldn't be looking at a bunch of mirrors, but it depending on the angle, but for the most part, if you're looking straight at something, it's kind of like when we shot the laser into the water. If you shot it straight down, it would shoot all the way through and keep a straight trajectory. But when I turned it at an angle, all of a sudden it takes this weird uh, hook when it hits there and right. refracts off the glass as it goes from a fast medium to a slow one. So. Yeah, I don't know. Very hmm. interesting. That is interesting. All right, we got a couple more on this topic, and then we got the par versus eyeballs. How crappy your eyes are. Yeah, this one was actually really <laughs> interesting when we did it. All right, next one. Uh, Patrick, on the topic of uh, air versus water, I think this was a fair way to address the issue with testing. I think air testing and water testing have their own respective benefits. Sure, biofouling on the glass needs to be taken into consideration, but even with biofouling, uh, I would wager that the majority is sent back into the tank and not being and not absorbed by the dirty glass. Okay, two pieces on this. So the question is: is is it fair to test uh, in water if the glass is dirty? Okay, so I've seen this pop up as a rebuttal on many of these things, mm -hmm. right? Well, yeah, dude, if it's filthy, then it's not going to reflect light the same way. But I'm also not going to want to look at my show tank through a filthy piece of glass. So yes and no. Like yeah. the way that you would actually look at this tank or have it in your house, it would probably not have the same exact properties. But like in a real world application where I want my super awesome tank to look super awesome and not dirty, <laughs> uh, I don't know. And the other part of it is, you know, this was really interesting because I did not see, this is the part of the physics I did not expect to see. So glass has a thickness. It, you know, it could be a half inch thick, it could be a quarter inch thick. Uh -huh. And I expected what happened would happen is the laser or light would come down, hit the glass. Inside pane. Yeah, inside pane, and then refract back off, in which case it would be hitting like the dirty glass, I ah, guess, right? Yeah. But what's really happening is it's passing through that surface, hitting the outside edge, and then bouncing back in. And the way that you could see it in the video that we produced is you could see the in and the out. It yeah. doesn't like, you know, have a hard angle where it bounces in and out. The oh, out travels through, continues the path, is a, and then comes down. It's about as far apart as the thickness of the glass. Yeah. So with the quarter inch glass, mm. the in and the out are actually about a quarter inch apart. Half not, inch, it's about half. And not only that, but then you, uh, when you guys, I don't think it was in your video, but when you and, uh, when you and I were doing that on a uh, uh, tank, uh, we were pointing the laser at the side of the glass. And then at the bottom of the, t uh, the tank, on the black bottom, there's two dots. Yeah. It's like one line coming in, hitting the water, refracting down this way, hits the glass, comes back out off the glass, and now it's separated into two. There's one really strong one that's bounce, going through the glass and bounce out, yep. but a little bit 
that light is actually reflected off the inside, of the inside too. Paint. And yeah. you can see a second little dot, sometimes a third one. Probably 80-20, though. Yeah, uh, at least. Yeah. yeah, way, way more is going through and bounce out. So it's actually not the dirty end. The dirty end could actually prevent that. But the real question is then is like, do I keep my tank clean? If the answer is yes, this doesn't apply to you. <laughs> if your tank is filthy, this definitely applies to you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. That's true. Uh, it's a very interesting question. Mm. All right, Justin B. Great video. It would be interesting to see the difference between the reflection on the bottom of the tank. Does the glass and bare bottom reflect more or less uh. light uh, uh, onto the sand? Did you guys test in RODI or salt water mm. since the refractive index in air is 1.0 uh, and uh, RODI and 1.32 in salt water? So the answer is. Or the question really here is a little bit is like, would the bare bottom actually reflect more light than like sand, white sand? Mm. In this case, I think what they brought up before is actually applicable because bare bottoms are always dirty. They always have coral junk, mm. everything's like growing up. So, what a lot uh, of times ABS too. Oh, or black. Yeah. yeah. In which case, definitely no. Uh, so, or you painted it bottom black, yeah. which we'll tell you in a second. Yeah. Definitely no. So I don't think that you could use the argument that a bare bottom glass is actually going to reflect, mm. reflect more light in the end, in an actual application, because you're not going to keep it clean the same way you keep the sides clean. And one of the, and I saw another part to this question, because there's a couple different things that he's talking about here, but mm -hmm. one of the things was that refractive index. So air being 1.00, water, RODI water being 1.32, and salt water being 1.3. Uh, to me, that says, okay, in air, there's no refractive index. The, the beam comes from here, and it continues on that path until it hits the uh, table or what have you. Water as a 1.32 where... Uh, water is a... Fresh water is one. Fresh water is one. And, and salt water is 1.32. Okay. Uh, anyway, so, uh, you know, when it hits uh, fresh water, it uh, has a little refractive index, but then it comes down. Does that mean that salt water being a higher refractive index, the beam comes down and bends even further? Pro yes, but probably not to a degree where it would change the PAR numbers or you could actually see the difference in the laser beam. I don't think you could. I, you might be able to see a different laser beam if you really had it side by side. We tested in fresh water versus salt water because we used to do it in salt water. Uh, and the problem is the salt water would actually grow like uh, bacterial films and blooms yeah, and stuff in it. You couldn't get very many tests done before the, the, the yeah. uh, tank was cloudy and it skewed the results from the PAR meter. If you were, did it on Friday and then you came in on Monday to finish, it, you'd have to like empty the tank because it had this mm. weird gunk in it. Uh, and so uh, in the end, we're like, well, let's just see if there's really a difference here between fresh water and salt water. And we did a grid of uh, PAR measurements and we couldn't get any measurable difference. So like, now we just in fresh. Yeah, so I, I couldn't. I couldn't just, there was no noticeable difference between them mm -hmm. and why are we going to mix up salt water, maintain it and constantly be switching it out if it doesn't make any difference. So uh, we test in fresh water, by the way, uh, and that's the reason why. He also makes, uh, makes the point here and asks the question, are you also, are you heating the water as refractive index is temperature dependent? Yeah, again, it probably does change it just a tiny bit, but not like the same effect of capturing all the light and refracting it back yeah. in. So, no, we don't heat the water to the exact temperature uh, that you would have in a tank, but it's also not terribly off because it's 70 degrees in this room. Mm. So, you know, it's eight degree difference. You can decide for yourself. I don't actually know the answer to that question. Like, I've never tried to heat the water to see if it dramatically changes the angle. I don't think but, it's like, much. I think it might change the 
the distribution of light a little bit. Mm. I mean, by a little bit, I'm not sure even measurable, uh, but it won't change how much light like passes through the glass, I don't think, or anything like that. Yes, all right. All right. Uh, Go ASCII says, notice the par values are lower in the back half of water filled tank due to the light absorption by the back background. Great job, guys. Okay, if you've watched any of Randy's work and BRS TV investigates, all of them, yeah. you'll notice the back half of top, bottom, uh, or the top, middle, and bottom are always way, way, way darker. Yeah, and the 60-gallon cube that we have is painted black. And actually, Marcos uh, Ignacio says, uh, did you guys test the, with the different background colors? Aha, just wrapped up that test. Just shot that video, and we're gonna have that next week. Uh, the difference between, all right, so if we, know, if we notice that black absorbs light and black absorbs uh, spectrum, uh, what is it? What if we have a no painted tank? What if we have a tank with a mirrored back? What if it was white? What if it was light blue? What if it was medium blue? What if it was dark blue? Tested all of those. So one of the ideas I had in here, why we tested like a few different shades of blue, blue yeah. was, all right, so we've heard this before, but do you know why I read the reason why a leaf looks green? And it's because it's reflecting the green light from the sun back at your eye, and it's actually absorbing the rest, mm. right? So what if we took like a deep blue color and painted it blue? Would it reflect, absorb the other bits of light, but reflect par back back in the tank? Most of the par comes from that little that blue spectrum, right? Yeah. 400 to 460. So maybe not total brightness, but would it reflect par back in? Would mm -hmm. it, it then dark blue perform just as good as white? You guys are gonna find out. It's really cool. Yeah, uh, uh, very. What we find out is really cool. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? This one was actually a surprising to me in a way that I shouldn't have been surprised because we already knew that painting the back of the tank black was dramatically lowering the uh, par numbers. Yeah, right? we, and we mentioned it in all of the investigates video. Well, you and uh, like you just say, hey, notice at the back wall, it's because the tank is painted black. I've answered that question so many times. So many times. So here's the piece, though. Yeah. If I thought that the light was reflecting off the inside of the glass and bouncing out, black why would painting the black matter? Yeah. Should have connected the dots that it's actually reflecting off of the trench going through the glass and reflecting off the next edge. Yeah. Yeah, because that's yeah. the only way that painting it black would have any effect. Mm. And there's no question it has a It has an effect. effect. There's a percentage of par lost in the back when you do that. All right, so the next one here, uh, I could have been wrong here, but I don't think the tank size uh, has too much effect on the reflection and making test, or does it have too much to make it useful? We don't have the same size tank. Actually, we kind of already talked about this again. Yeah. So yes, changing the tank size matters, but doesn't mean we have to go back to the absolute worst option either. Exactly. So, all right, eyes versus par meter. The crappy eye meter. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to tell you this. This part, I got a, another pet peeve here, and and this this is like mm. how few people use a par meter to set this up, and for some reason. Will spend, you know, many people spend anything from a few hundred bucks to a few thousand dollars to buy these lights to, you know, for the hope of doing the best we possibly can for these animals so that they look the best, grow the fastest, and we achieve our dreams. We'll spend all that money and time, all that research on it. And then when it goes time to set them up, just flip the switches until it looks good and walk away. That's <laughs> like, adjust your lights based off of your coral. Are they turning pale and dying? Then lower it. Are they turning brown and dying? Then increase it. 
Like the bar is not dying, and that and that's yeah, like that's like to the very edge of uh, uh, you are bringing them to the brink of death before you're like, oh, I should probably change that. Okay, and so this is actually another pet peeve. Is the reality of this is you'll see a lot of people say uh, raise their hand like, yeah, I flipped the switches and I was able to guess and my tank's doing really well. Well, here's the problem, man. Bravo, you were one of the chunk of people that were able to guess. Maybe you had some, uh, you know, help. Like you watched one of Randy's videos, which kind of got you close to begin with. But here, or you maybe had a friend that got you close, or a general idea. But most people would not buy an $800 light and then turn it up to 30%. And that might actually be the number that you need, depending on what you're trying to put in this thing. Mm. All right. So here's the problem, though. Is it's like it's how could you possibly know about the failures? Because the failures killed everything and they're gone. They're not here to raise their hand anymore. <laughs> and so, like, they're not properly represented in this equation. And most of them are probably fairly embarrassed. Mm. You know, like, I spent a fortune on this tank, I bought all these corals and I killed them all. You know, F this hobby, I'm out. <laughs> you know, like, I'm certainly not hanging around to tell everybody about my failure. No. You know, so, but there's a solution to this, which is called a par meter and some windows. And ah. You can just be done with this conversation. I know I'm in that range. Par and lighting will never be my problem. Will never be the reason I fail. <laughs> and uh, okay, so that leads straight to the first comment here. Ah. So par meters can solve this. We used to rent par meters. We don't anymore. So the guy, uh, or the person here says, how about we make it a seven day rental for 50 bucks again? A hundred bucks seems insane. And why does anybody need a par meter for two months? Okay, so good question. So for those who don't know, we used to rent par meters. We decided like it's just ridiculous to ask somebody to buy five hundred dollar par meter. I, I, maybe somebody else says it isn't ridiculous. I feel like it's five hundred bucks. You know, like to you use it for a couple times. Thousand bucks on your life, you're gonna use it five hundred bucks once. You're like, and then there's like these other solutions. Like I guess you could get one for your, you know, your coral club or a reef club. But you like could. then I have to be part of a club. I have to go get there. I have to wait for Jerry to be done with it. Blah blah blah. Like I just I just want to set up this tank, man. Yeah. And I don't yeah. want to spend five hundred bucks on something I'm gonna use once. So we we did this rental thing. And the problem with the rental thing of seven days is so many people ended up into it for five weeks, and then it got way more expensive than mm. fifty bucks. And, you know the other problem of it is is like. You know, all of a sudden we have to have all these rental agreements and you have to have all these processes For internally. Each and each state's got its own rules about rental stuff. Yeah. And it was just a total nightmare. Yeah, logistically. Uh, and I'm responsible for the, the new world, which is, how about instead of using it for a week, we just change the world and say, you can return it even if you used it. So use the thing for two months. If you, know, you want to. Tweak your lights, get them set up, tweak it, do whatever you want to do. Take two months, let the you know rock work get dirty in that time. The sand is no longer brilliant white. You can adjust, you can do whatever you want. Take two months to get this light and you set up perfect. Send it back to us, doesn't matter you used it. Yeah. Uh, as long as it's not broken or damaged. Yeah. And 20% restocking fee, which is 100 bucks, man. But you got to use it for two months. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't know. I thought it was a great deal. And then on top of that, those op those ones open box. If you're like, oh, these guys are getting rich off this 100 bucks. No, we're putting them in open box. You can buy it at uh, had had, uh, 100 bucks off yeah. to the next person. <laughs> so actually, we made nothing. And I shouldn't say that out loud because uh, Bob is going to kill me. <laughs> uh, but the, the whole goal here is like, let's start measuring this stuff. Hmm. You know, my pet peeve. 
don't sell a thousand dollar light and then leave you high and dry. You can't do the application with it. Yes. All right. So uh, that's why we switch from the rental thing to uh, use it for two months and send it back if you want. Awesome. Uh, just trying to help everybody be successful with it. Next one. Uh, so, I versus par. So hey, just for reference point, the people that didn't see this, what we did is ah, we, we collected. Which is fun actually. Like, was it five or six? There was five individuals. Took five people here and we asked them to do two no, tasks. six pros is Six pros. Six pros. Six, six pros here, like are the best of the best here, including one of them which actually sets up or tests yeah. all of the lights for investigates. So Brent who tests every single light that's out there, he should have an idea of like what par is from a light by his own eye. I guess a lot of them within five percent or five par. Yeah. We've got Jen who has been doing this for, you know, 25, 26 plus years and setting up tanks and maintaining tanks and adjusting lights. Then you have like uh, Jason, who had one of the best tanks here. Mark, who has one of the best tanks currently here. Uh, Adam, who is kind of you know he's he's familiar with the par meter, has used a couple times before. Mm -hmm. uh, Various skill sets. And then Josh, who actually took care of the tanks so that these lights were set up on. Actually set them up himself. Yeah, right. He set these lights. So now, without a par meter. What is the par at this spot, at this like blue spectrum, white spectrum, whatever? So here's the moral of the story. Yeah. If these guys can't do it, everybody else is screwed. You know, like it's just pure luck after that, <laughs> right? Uh, and so unless you're some super pro, if you count yourself in the super pro uh, category, uh, I'll give you a different credit. But if I just bought these lights for the first time, how, if no these guys can't do it, who can? Yeah. And their answer was we walked them in, we set the lights up and said, what's the par? Uh, and uh, actually, uh, Brent, Brent was able to do it really, really good. Was the best at guessing. Yeah. Guessing yeah. them. He was terrible at setting them up, though, because the second test was actually, here's the keys to the kingdom. You now have a reference point. You know that there are uh, yep. four XR30s on top of the 750. You know about where these uh, the sliders probably should be. Set it, set it up to LPS zone, yeah. SPS yeah. zone. Set it to set it, set this light between 75 and 150 par. Go. Couldn't do like, it. Couldn't do it. Not even close. No, no, I couldn't do it. And like, in fact, I think it was like 70% of all of the guesses and set it, setups were wrong. Yeah. Overall. From this crew, right? These are pros. Okay. All right. Okay. You know what? I'm gonna really let a secret out. So we like to like, you know, give you a little bit of insider action. Yeah. Why didn't Randy and Ryan take guesses? Because I don't want to be wrong. I didn't, want to look like, <laughs> I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I didn't want to look like a total idiot. That's totally bad. We would have done know? it too. Uh, it's so funny. I would even say that these guys like, are probably better at it because they test lights for a living. I do this. I've been doing it for 17 years, man. And I know, man, that the human eye autocorrects for yeah. uh, light. I know I'm that going to be the wrong. blue light. And it's funny, actually, because the more you know, actually, the guesses and the setups got worse. Or the setups actually got worse because. I know that par is blue light, and blue light looks way dimmer. The cones of the eye represent uh, blue light as way, way darker than green light. Mm -hmm. It's like 5x. Uh, so it's gonna take five times as much blue light to look this as bright as green light. Mm -hmm. I know all that, and it was interesting because one of the reasons that Brent failed this test so bad as setup is he forgot that there were diffusers on uh, mm. the radions. And he, when he was setting it up, he knew the tool so well. He knew what radions should be and what they are because he does this for a living. Yeah. But he forgot to the account 20%, for the 25% yeah. or so that mm -hmm. the diffusers take out. 
And so even with the knowledge, you can make a slip up pretty damn easy. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. All right, so some of the other questions that came out of eyes versus par and how crappy your eyes are. Uh, you should, uh, uh, Pat Sorox, or Sorsox says, uh, you should do a video where folks set the par over time based on coral reaction. This is how most folks without a par meter or lux meters would set lights. Then let it run for a few weeks, measure the par at the end, see what the coral par values were throughout the tank and see if they're in line with today's recommendations for coral types, being 300 for SPS, 150 for LPS, uh, low light softies, blah, blah, blah. Put that very common approach to the test. Okay, there's two angles on this. One is, that's how it's been done. And if we just uh, showed you for, by six pros can't do it like, well, can't do it by eye. Uh, and I, we also made mention that, you know, death on either extreme, too high or too low, should not be the bar. This is kind of like a step backwards if we okay. were to test this. So there's two steps here. The way that we develop the 150 to, or the 250, okay. or 200 to 350 uh, in par for LPS or SPS, and then uh, 75 to 150 for, for LPS. LPS was twofold. One, we took all of the tanks here that were the most successful and measured them. Then we went to WWC and they told us the zones that they shoot for in all their tanks. They do this for a living, looking for mm -hmm. optimal growth because growth means money, you know, in yeah. a commercial setting. Uh, and they confer, uh, uh, that uh, they agreed that that range was what they're looking for. And then I found an article from Dana uh, Riddle uh, who goes around and he tests par in a variety of people's tanks and takes measurements of what corals are at different levels. And he found that window. it was in this window where all the, the corals were the most successful. So, uh, you know, basically what we've done is what uh, uh, Petter Sox here is already is talking about, it's already been done, is by mixing our, our, our experience here, it's been with Worldwide, and then all of the thousands of uh, par meter measurements that uh, uh, Dana's taken as well. So that's kind of already done. But to get to the point of what he's talking about though, is the way that most people that are setting these things up, you don't use a par meter, is you turn the lights on, and then you watch and see what happens. Basically what that means is I'm gonna turn it on and I'll make changes if I'm killing the organism. Mm. Because that's what it's, it's gonna do, is it, it's gonna show you that it doesn't like it by essentially dying. Right. right? Uh, yeah. You start to retract and look ugly, you're gonna deteriorate yeah. this organism's health, and they're gonna have to try to nurse it back, which in many cases will lose the color, you'll lose the brilliance of the coral, and it may take a year mm. to come back. And like, yeah. It's I, a... <sighs> It's a living. It's, like, it's a living organism. It's a plant. It's almost like, uh, all right. So I bought a dog, and I'm not going to do anything. Oh, he's getting skinnier, getting skinnier, getting skinnier. Here's mm. a, an extra piece of kibble. Maybe that work. It's you know what it is. Is it's a way. It was the way that we used to do, but like there is a better There's way. Better, yeah. right? And it's not a comparative. Like a single coral can cost a hundred bucks. So if I spend a hundred bucks on rent or like or, or buying a buying farm a meter or holding on to it for two months and then just returning it open box, like, you know what? I can save all the organisms. And more to the point, this is the part actually that I've said many times, is I get the confidence that I know lighting is not my problem. So if you know yeah. the corals are retracting, they look sick, 
I know I don't need to don't monkey need to with lighting or lights, worry about it. Lights isn't it. And That's in fact, not the problem. it'd be one of the knee-jerk things that people would do is they look sick, I'll go change the lighting. But in many cases, now you just made the problem worse because you're screwing up its environment, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's actually a different problem. So maybe it's the irritant, maybe it's the chemistry's off. So the value of Again. not doing it this way, which is, you know, doing it based on the health of the organism, like intentionally deteriorating it and then changing it, hoping that it comes back. And the reality is, is like these things thrive on stability. So the best results will be six months of the same yeah. you know, intensity, yeah. not changing it every week or month is uh, I'm actually more likely to keep making it look worse doing yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh. uh, it is a way, just not the recommended way. That's true. <laughs> Uh, Luke Dickey says, uh, also here to say, please redo the Senai testing. Later models are at least two times uh, any other PAR meter. You know, okay, I, I threw this one in here because I've seen this question yeah, now like a dozen times in the last couple of weeks. Calls to test the Senai PAR meter. Okay, so we actually tested the Senai meter and it tested like, I think I'm, I'm, it's been a long time, but we did a lot, all the PAR meters against each other. And I think that on average it was like 15% lower. So to hear that it's now two times any other, we should go find out. We should. Because it's that apparently way. it's it's new models or something like that. So Well, we should uh, go test or it. Or some and find of the out. latest uh, models. Pull one off the shelf and yeah. find out because two times will lead you to the wrong direction. It's actually a, probably a good uh, good time to revamp that test, uh, that whole investigates to begin with, I don't know. Well, you know, it was interesting because we found out that the LeCore back then a was actually had a firmware very problem. They didn't even know about expensive tool that like some very important tests are being ran on. Okay, we're into worldwide, this for a few not, not aquariums. Yeah. Yeah, we're into this for a few grand uh, for our purposes here. And but they're using this thing all over the world, like you said. All kinds of applications. And they had no idea that the firmware was giving the wrong multiplier. And here we, we are. We found it out here. We're just testing the aquarium lights in the whole a tank. world testing no. these things. <laughs> the whole Rand, world's Randy, been using that. Randy found it. <laughs> so, all right. Um, Okay. Reef Beta, now doing it again with a $30 Lux meter in a Ziploc bag, can people guess par with the help of a cheap Lux meter? So this one has actually been top of the mind for me many years. I've never tested it. Because mm. everyone says you can't use a Lux meter, and I maybe get it wrong, but I think Lux is basically testing brightness, mm. where par is measuring photosynthetically active radiation, which yep. is not the same thing. Yeah. Uh, however, like, if we could come up with like a generally accepted spectrum, you know, that most tanks are in, could you get a usable reading out of a Lux meter? Hmm. I don't know the answer to that question. We should try to find out. That, uh, you know, that means uh, we'd all have to have the same lighting uh, apparatus. But you could set up, word. per se, you, you know, using the, uh, the Radeon Blue Plus, yeah. you know, setting it all at max, you know, you can use this to get into a range. Now you're gonna have well, to apply it to par and it's gonna, it's gonna be a little wonky, but for 30 bucks. For 30 bucks, yeah, it's, a, it's better than guessing or watching the corals die and adjusting. Okay, but he, he actually brings up another thing here, which is the <laughs> fact that most Lux meters, I haven't seen one that's waterproof yeah. sensor. Just put it in a Ziploc bag. Put it in a Ziploc bag and does the bag actually affect uh, what brand of bag? <laughs> uh, after 30 bucks, I think, and then all the questions in my mind, 
I mean, I hate to keep bucks. saying it this over with, but yeah. buy it and then return it in two yeah. months. And yeah. Spend get 70 extra dollars. Get 80% to get of your money back and go do Confidence. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It looks like we've got a few questions yeah, up here. There's a couple up here before we go. Uh, James Florido says, send the effluent of the second uh, off-gas chamber of the calcium to a GFO reactor with a ton of GFO before going into the tank. It would remove all the phosphates from the reactor and not the tank. Okay, so I've heard that before, uh, and I, and like actually, Eheim makes like this big chunky stuff. Yeah, we don't sell it anymore because nobody ever bought it. Mm. But I thought that that would be a good because GFO you generally need a tumble, but this big chunky stuff you could probably get it to flow around. The problem I thought about it is you're gonna do two things. People believe the GFO actually pulls out some of the alkalinity, mm. uh, and the second part of it is are you just gonna deplete that little chamber of the stuff? Is it gonna turn into a big rock? Uh, I've had the same kind of thought processes. I just never tested how that works exactly. Maybe some people can chime in. No, and I think the effectiveness of like for the 160, this running that calcium reactor uh, with the two little fishies media in it for years, just never was a phosphates just weren't a problem for us. Neither were nitrates because that refugium we had on there was so effective. Uh, just suck it right out. You wouldn't even notice. So yeah. pH is the problem then. True. Uh, also, he asked, uh, is the reflection similar with acrylic? Probably not. You know what? It's going to have a totally different refractive index. So I, I don't know if yeah. you know, like, how it's going to bend the light. My guess, if you had to ask me, you guess, I haven't tested it on an acrylic tank, whether or not you get the laser through with water or not. I don't, I don't think know. we have an acrylic tank. I here. don't think there is acrylic well, You know what? We could probably test it on the, a sump here. That or uh, we do have, a, I think there's a couple frag system tanks okay. that are in here. Hey, you know what? Uh, check out uh, my Facebook it's, uh, or Instagram. It's B, uh, Ryan. BRS TV guy. BRS TV guy. Uh, after this, the very next thing I'll do is go grab the laser and we'll shoot it through either the sump of water uh, or we'll shoot it through a, a tank. box. Yeah. Uh, we'll go find out. Like literally right after this is we done. We got all we'll this stuff out. around here. Cool. Right. Uh, par versus per. Which one's more important? Uh, this is a, like one of my other pet peeves of this conversation, right? <laughs> so, PER is photosynthetically usable, mm. right? Radiation, meaning that like PAR, you know, like there are you can get PAR radiation out of somewhat of green and some other areas. Yeah. Usable means by usable by that specific organism. Mm. Okay, so what it's a, a mythical creature. It doesn't really exist because, like. Every one of these corals has a... Completely different. Yeah, like come from different depths. They the come not the same. Different reflective pigments, different fluorescent mm -hmm. reflective pigments. They've adapted to different light. Like, I, it's like, you know, the purr thing kind of comes out like a little bit of a knowledge flex. Like, mm. uh, you guys are still talking par. And, and like actually par is an interesting thing because I was talking to Jake and Jake was uh, berating me because he's like, you gotta use micromoles. Stop using the phrase par because when you use the word 450 par, it's like saying 450 temperature. Uh, <laughs> Instead of degrees. Yeah, degrees. <laughs> I should say in parts it was 450 micromoles. Everybody the, knows. The problem is, is like the universe doesn't use that terminology. Science does. Is it on us to change the way that all of you talk about this subject? Maybe, yeah. but like if I start including words like micromoles, like uh, it starts to lose a lot of people. I know. So I, I don't know. Uh, but with per, it feels a little bit like the same kind of flex, like knowledge flex of like 
yes, there is this piece, man. There is a perfect range of photosynthetically usable radiation for each specific organism, whether it be a plant, it could be my could be weeping us. willow tree, it could be my tomato plant, it could be the coral, and they're all gonna be different, and it's gonna be different probably for the orange coral than it would be for the dark blue coral. It'd be different for the LPS coral that's uh, coming from 30 feet down or more, and then the coral is sitting in or under a, you know, at 12 inches of water uh, in a tidal area so it's a good it's a concept to think about but like you know the purr thing on the senai is just like a red green and blue sensor that kind of like yeah does some math and there's something there but there isn't really anything there for the average reefer for the average reefer most of our tanks are tuned to a similar shade of blue. They're not dramatically different in most cases. And if you hit the par range, you're probably safe. 90, Could you tweak like it 90, a little bit? Yeah. 90%, 95% if you're in the right par range and some of the, you know, this spectrum ranges, you're going to be fine. You know, actually, the, that'll bring up a good point. Is I gotta find this article. I, 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 like, there's so many Dana articles, <clears throat> like it's just mind-boggling. But there was one where he actually went around and showed you where the most successful par range for each color of coral. Uh, so he found that, like, you know, I'm gonna make this up number up because I don't remember what it was. But like oranges, he just found the most successful orange SPS at 200 par. Hmm. And he found the most successful red SPS at whatever part. I gotta find this article because it was awesome. Yeah. I'm sure maybe next yeah, week yeah, yeah. I can find it. But uh, yeah, you just find these different colors, uh, coral, they can change the whole thing. And then when you look at Josh and he told us about worldwide corals and he's like, yeah, do we shoot for the 200 to 350 range? But like some of these corals just oh, do better at different ends of that range. Yeah, there's or, some in some 400. There's some at the bottom doing, doing great in like, yeah, 150. But if you do the 80-20 on this, 80%, they'll all survive in this range. But some of them show their best color if you get either one end of that range or sometimes a little bit outside of it even. Mm. And so the way he'll do that is not adjust all the lights so you screw up the environment for everything. It's move that specific coral mm -hmm. around to find its best coloration. And the idea here is, is if you're happy with the coloration of the other ones, leave them alone for God's sake, mm -hmm. you know? It's the ones that don't seem to be doing uh, well. And, and remember, like, give it six months unless the thing looks like it's literally dying, you know? Yeah. Give it some effort. And you may even want to walk it, uh, not just dramatically change it. You know, walk it around and, you know, show it different environments. Sweet. All right. Well, uh, behind the scenes, That's answer the, some questions. The stuff we haven't been telling you and the questions we haven't been answering. Boom. All right, we'll see you next week. See you guys. <laughs>